Philippians chapter 2. We will we'll continue in our study of this book. One thing we have seen in this discussion on the furtherance of the gospel and the importance of bringing the lost to the is Christ is the importance of doing so as a church with a united hearts and spirit. And that's kind of the where chapter 2, verse 5 is the centerpiece of this passage, which says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And it goes on to explain the mind he had, the mind of humility, the mind of service, the mind of love for, the, for you and I and being willing to go to the death of the cross. And, and it is that mind that is to unite, unite us. We're to have his servant's heart in his objections of furthering the gospel. But as we come to our next passage here in verse 14, in the next part of our passage, we find that this unity did not maybe exist as it should in the church at Philippi. And so Paul addresses this disunity in the context of being united in the mind of Christ. In verse 14, it says, Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may be blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Now, you might look at verse 14 and thought, you know, where does, where does that fit in this passage? It seems like it was just dropped in there as a, as a little challenge. And yes, the previous verse says God is at work in us to accomplish his will. And then he drops this one little uh, issue, this concern, in, in, into this context when he says to do all things without complaining and disputing. And yet when we consider this in a greater context of the passage, we recognize it does fit. It does fit because... That the complaining and disputing represents conflict, doesn't it? And we see when, we, when we, we've seen and made reference to chapter 4, verse 2, where he tells two ladies, ladies, Yori and Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord. And, and the various references to unity indicates there was some, maybe some complaining and disputing going on, some conflict in the church. And Paul here seeks to address it on the, on the bedrock of the mind of Christ, of being Christ-like in our thinking and in, in unified in him. The other thing we see here in this context is, is the importance of being that kind, being godly, godlike, being without faults in the midst of a crooked, perverse nation because we shine as lights in the world. And so we see the theme of that continuing theme of the furtherance of the gospel, reaching the loss for Christ in this context. And what he's telling us here is this, this, this issue he's dis discussing is hindering that light from shining, from that work from going on as it ought before God. And so he tells us in the church in Philippi here to do all things without complaining. He first says without complaining. Um, I don't know if anybody here knows what it means to complain about anything. <laughs> you, you might know someone who complains and don't look at your spouses. And, uh, but we understand what that means. And in reality, complaining about our circumstances often is really directed towards God, though we don't look up, we don't say his name. But if our God is sovereign over our lives and over our circumstances, and we don't like what's going on in our lives, and we're really expressing a lack of faith in saying, God, I don't like what you're doing. I don't like where you've got me. I don't like what's going on in my life. And that truly is not only a lack of faith, but is often a selfish expression, expecting that the life revolves around my cribby, so to speak. It revolves around me, and God, don't you know that? Life's supposed to revolve around me, and I want this to change. Now, generally, is what we want. We want out. 
But, you know, we celebrate today our Thanksgiving, and really thankful, thankfulness is, is counters that, doesn't it? It really counters that, that tendency we have to complain. When we step back and recognize, the, recognize who our God is, we can in everything give thanks, as the Bible says, or giving thanks always in all things. That is the expression of a God-centered life, of a faith in of Almighty God who watches over me. It is that trust that can bring joy in spite of our trials. And so instead of having a complaining negative spirit, we can have a joyful spirit because we know God is at work in our lives. That's the previous verse. God works in us. He's at work. And we must remember as Christians that walking by faith and living the Christian life in our trials is not simply surviving trials. And sometimes we take that approach, doesn't it? This is kind of a rabbit trail. But it's not about just surviving and getting by and waiting for the light at the end of the tunnel to finally get there. Really, in, in, in the power of God and the grace of God, we can thrive in trials. God intends life to continue to go on. Even in a, few, in a few years ago when the pandemic hit, God didn't take God out of surprise, by surprise, and his work just continued right on through. Nothing changed. He's the same. For, his, his mission's the same. His objection's the same. His power's the same. His love's the same. His message's the same. And he just kept right on trucking, so to speak, carrying out the mission of the gospel. And and that's what we're to do as we trust him in our trials because as a sovereign God, we, can, we know he's at work and we can say, thank you, Lord. We can have a genuine attitude of thankfulness, not for our circumstances necessarily, but because God is at work in our circumstances and we can trust him with it. Remember, this is written from a, from a prison cell, this, 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 this book was. And, and yet our thanks is not, rather than being rooted in our circumstances, it's rooted in the person of God because of who he is. God is wise, he is able, he's sovereign, he loves me, he has given promises of a sovereign care over me, he's faithful to me, he's got good plans for me, and on and on we could go. And that's where our, when, when our faith is, and when we get our eyes off the word of God, the person of God, we begin to focus on our circumstances, we complain, don't we? Now, with all that, I don't think that's necessarily exactly the kind of complaining he's talking about in this context. In this context, we see more the idea of, of complaining about others, which is still circumstantial, you might say. But he's talking about complaining and disputing. Now, some of your versions will use the word grumbling. The dictionary, one Greek dictionary, defined it as murmuring, this word. But in John chapter 7, um, verse 12, the word is used in regards to people complaining about the Lord Jesus, murmuring, grumbling, complaining about, about the Lord Jesus. And, and, and therefore, with that in mind, and in this context, we see this refers to the relations in the church, and maybe a direct reference to chapter 4, verse 2, where we saw these two gals weren't getting along. And can you imagine that? People actual murmur, actually murmuring or complaining about each other. That never happens in your lives either, does it, in our homes? You know, you might say uh, sometimes we tend to think that, well, they've got it coming. That's kind of our approach. If we, if we get a negative attitude or comment about someone, you just because maybe they have genuinely hurt us. Maybe they've offended us. You know, James 3 reminds us that no one can tame the tongue, and, when all, and we all offend in all things. We all offend in the tongue. It happens. It occurs in our lives. And though that may be true, it does not give us the excuse to respond from a, in a fleshly way we're just instead respond to those things in, in a divine way, in a godly way. You see, because the flesh always evaluates our natural flesh, our natural inclination is to evaluate people as how they affect me. 
And if, they're if, they, if they inconvenience me, if they annoy me, if they offend me, if they hurt me, or sometimes if they do things different than me, I feel put out, that they're wrong. You know, that mentality, you see, I've, I've seen it in churches, but it's, it's a victim mentality we see all around us today. That if someone dis disagrees with you, they're, they're the enemy. Instead of recognizing people sometimes just have differences of opinions and perspectives. But this critical spirit that has a tendency to complain about others should be put away from us. Ephesians 4.31 says, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. God says those things ought not exist in the Christian experience. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Let them, and, and these are all relational terms, aren't they? Bitterness, wrath, anger, evil speaking, malice. You know, God, by the way, takes how we talk about others seriously. God does not like slander. God hates slander. James chapter 3 is all about slander and, and using the use of the tongue. And he says there... You know, thereby we bless God with the tongue and the same tongue we use to curse men who are made in the image of God. He says these things ought not to be because people are made in the image of God. And so he says, and so in Ephesians 4, and I think here he says, stop complaining of evil speaking about each other. The Philippians simply are here told to stop it. It should not occur in the Christian experience because in the spirit, led by the spirit, inspired by the word of God, believers ought to relate to people in regards to eternity. In light of their standing before God and their needs before God. Ephesians 4.32, the next verse in Ephesians 4 says this, and be kind one to another. And this is unconditional. This is just not when it's deserved. This is the miraculous work of the Spirit of God that can produce this kind of love in the believer. It's not natural love. Natural love is a critical spirit. God's love says you can be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. All terms that describe relationships, once again. That is how the Spirit of God would lead us to respond to others, to view others in our lives. And we find those words in the Scriptures, throughout the Scriptures, in regards to the Spirit-led life, kindness, love, grace, compassion, forbearance, long-suffering, forgiveness. I always love what Peter has to say about about relationships, especially chapter 4, verse 8 in 1 Peter says, And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. We're nearby, just flip over to the next book, the book of Colossians, and, it, and, and that same mentality is addressed here. And this is what ought to exist in the church family if we're to shine as lights in the world. Verse 12, after talking about putting on the new man or the new life that we have in Christ in the previous verses, it says, verse 12 says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, put on kindness, put on humility, put on meekness and longsuffering, bear with one another, forgive one another. If any has a complaint against another, maybe a difference of opinion, whatever it is, even as Christ forgave you, you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection and so on. Complaining about others, having a complaint. It's different than having a disagreement. This is, this is grumbling, murmuring, complaining, and God says it should not exist. If you go back to Philippians chapter 2, he tells us here, don't do things without it. It should be absent from the Christian experience within the, within the service and fellowship of the church. Along with that, he, see, he mentions disputing. Do, do all things without complaining and disputing. 
Some versions use the word arguments for this verse. And really, I think what he's talking about is arguments over opinions. Because in some places, the word is actually translated opinions in some places in the New Testament. And, and that's, you know, imagine that. Believers arguing over opinions. I mean, there's a lot of hypotheticals here, isn't there? Because we're all opinionated. And, and all of our opinions are right. You know, right? You don't have a wrong opinion. You don't stand up and say, let me give you my wrong opinion. We all have a right opinion. How can that happen when we're different? Well, we're different. That's the point. That's the beauty God's created in life, to have the different uh, perspectives and opinions. Now, I'm not talking about biblical doctrines or ethical standards. I'm talking about opinions in life. And so much conflict in churches arises from differences of opinions. And it seems here if, if that these two ladies, at least, and maybe there had been some side-taking here, um, had a difference of opinion in something in the church. Seems to be what was going on. And what does he tell them? He look over chapter 4, verse 2. What, how did he tell them to resolve it? Familiar language. Be of the same mind in the Lord. That's how he tells them to resolve it. Be of the same mind in the Lord. That's dispute prevention or resolution, if you prefer. Seek the Lord's mind. Seek the Lord's will. We've seen that throughout our passages. Back in verse 27 of chapter 1 and chapter 2, Verses 2 through 4, we saw this idea of being one-minded. Chapter 2, verse 5, to have the mind of Christ. You see, it's seeking God's will that unites us. And that seeking God's will overrides our personal opinion and our personal agendas. Because there are so many differences of opinion oftentimes in an issue, like what color you should paint the walls or what, what kind of flooring you should put on the floor, or whatever, those crazy, stupid, silly things can often divide churches. And it can extend into, into ministry decisions and policy making. And the church, in essence, is to seek God's will because Jesus is the head of the church. He's the head. He's the one that will direct the body. And that's what we prayerfully seek together. And if that's the case in churches, if churches are to seek his will, that means someone's opinion is not going to get done. That's what that means. That's just how it works. I want to show you Acts chapter 6 this morning where... Um, there was a complaint in the early church. It was as dynamic as the early church was in their love for Christ and their witness for Christ, um, it, uh, they still had to deal with a complaint. Acts chapter 6, verse 1 says, Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint. And it's the same word used in Philippians, in the Greeks, complaint, against the Hebrews, against the Jews by the Hellenists, because they're... Widows were neglected in the daily distribution. And it might have been a legitimate complaint. I don't know how it was handled. So the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. And so they're going to come together for a solution. He said, therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word, the saying, please the multitude. And they chose, and they chose, and they chose. Now, I think it's indicative here that they sought the will of God because they did it according to the, will, the word of God, the dynamics of God. Notice here, it tells us in this congregation, he said in the, in the qualifications, they brought biblical principles to bear upon his decision in verse 5 when they said, first of all, they pick seven men, but make them of good reputation, men that are led by the Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit, men who are walking in the wisdom of God. 
And that's what they brought. They sought God's will. They brought biblical principles and teachings and dynamics to bear upon this decision. And so they chose the seven. Now I can't help but wonder if there wasn't a few people here and there says, well, they should have, you know, they should have picked Cousin Billy and Uncle Bart. And there might have still been some disagreement. This would have been a better choice. And I don't know if it was unified or not. It appears there was a unified decision here. Because there's times when decisions are made, whether it's in church leadership, whether it's in the church as a congregation, whether it's a person who's leading a particular ministry. There's going to be people who are going to say, well, I would do it this way. I would have done it that way. This is the better idea. And, and from our perspectives, it may be 100%, and from our viewpoint, but when the decision is made prayerfully and biblically, seeking the will of the Lord Jesus to lead whoever is in the decision-making position, whether it is the leadership of the church, whether it is the congregation of the church, whether it is someone who's heading a ministry of the church. And again, I'm not talking about biblical, doctrinal, ethical issues. I'm talking about just the way things get done. There's still going to be people who do it differently. Even as I look at the church and some of the different, you know, responsibilities people have in the church, you know, most everybody that, that leads, leads ministries or has responsibilities, I do things differently. In most cases, because I'm, I'm a different person. I'm sometimes a really different person. <laughs> but that's just the way it is. But you trust God to lead his people, whether it's, a, whether it's the spiritual leadership of the church or if the congregation's making a corporate decision or if someone's leading a ministry. You trust God to lead them and you pray for them. And the real test of spirituality, opposite, going back to Philippians chapter 2 of, of disputing, is can you support that decision if you disagree with it? And many don't. Many still grumble, murmur, think they have a better way, think they have the best way. And where God's, where the Bible's saying here is stop it. Trust the Lord. He's the one leading the church. Trust him to actually do it. Because he can. And he will. In, in, in our lives. And that's the beauty, I think, of the power of our God is that he'll lead different people different ways. He'll do, it, he'll do things differently and still accomplish his will in our lives. Now, going on here in Philippians chapter 2, after he says, don't, don't allow these things into your lives, he goes on to give us another reason. He says, that you might become blameless and harmless, in verse 15, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. And, I, and, I, and what he's saying here, in fact, one version, I think New American Standard Version says this, he says, so that you approve yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach. What he's saying here is that conflict is, is contributing in a negative way to the cause of Christ, to shining his lights, that's what he's saying. And he says, you, you, you're just trying to light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. That's how the world is. That's how this, this conflict, that's how the world operates. And who in the world would respect the church that has a reputation for conflict? I said, I can, I can, I can, I can get onto the, the, the restaurant and, and, and find people to argue with. Or my, even sometimes my social clubs get along better than some churches do. And so he's saying, he says, it's, it's affecting a testimony for Christ. And the, and the first thing in stating here, his desire for his children and to eliminate this is so you can, first of all, be blameless and harmless or innocent. Some versions use that. And I think that's referring to, first of all, we must be right before God. We must be blameless and innocent. Our hearts might be pure and right before God. 
And that's a requirement, by the way. 2 Timothy chapter 2 tells us when he talks about our bodies being a vessel, it says we must be sanctified and fit for the master's use, prepared for every good work. Our hearts have to be right for God in order for us to be used by him. It really is futile to teach a Sunday school class, to preach a sermon, perform a ministry, do whatever we're doing in the flesh when our hearts aren't right with God. That's another reason why even in our communion table, God encourages this church who was a carnal church to get right with God and or before they could celebrate communion in a respectful way, in a way that honors God and uplifts him. And that's what he's saying here, that first of all, you need to be blameless and innocent. You need to be without fault if you're going to shine as lights in the world. And then he goes on to say, children of God, or as children of God, children of God who are without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And I think the first phrase, blameless and harmless, is before God, primarily in the second phrase, children of God without fault, is before people. Don't give people a reason to point a finger, if I can put it in a, my own paraphrase description. Don't give reason to, to point a finger, to point out fault in the family of believers and give them a reason to disregard the gospel. And that's what Satan's always at work to accomplish. Satan wants to keep the lost lost, and he often uses wrong behavior in the lives of believers to accomplish that, sorry to say. And Paul's trying to correct that here in the church at Philippi. Don't give them a reason to disregard the gospel. Stand before them without fault so that they see the light of the gospel. Because conflict puts the lights out. That's what he's saying here. It turns people from the Lord. Who wants to be part of a family like that? Because in that context, love is absent oftentimes. But he says when we do, and that's the flip side of this, when we allow the Spirit of God to give us the right response to others, a biblical response, a spiritual response of love, consideration, forgiveness, forbearance, and long-suffering, and so on, when we are united around, and we do so because we're united around the person of Christ, the mind of Christ, the purposes of Christ, we can shine. This is what God wants. He says, you're in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. In other words, he's saying, don't fit in, by the way. We're in the midst. That's a lighthouse the church is supposed to be. It's the pillar and ground of the truth, according to Timothy, and it's to shine as a light for the gospel here in this passage, which means, as believers, we don't try to fit in. And it, it's tragic today that the church so often tries to accommodate the world or that believers try to fit in with the world and think they can abuse their liberty by living like the world, forgetting the fact that we're to shine brightly, we're to be distinguished from the world. And the law of love, which supersedes the law of liberty, by the way, says that we will never seek to be a do something that will be a stumbling block to hinder others from coming to Christ or being drawn to Christ. Yeah, you look around us, how many Christians are indistinguishable from the unsaved in their lives? You know, we like to look around us and think how bad things are getting in every avenue of life, don't we? Things are, are uh, the world's, our nation, our culture is deteriorating morally and spiritually, ethically on every front. But all that should mean is the light should shine brighter, shouldn't it? It should. We don't go along with them. Instead, it's an opportunity to shine brighter for Christ. You know, I, this is an observation. I think it's interesting. When you think of living in a country that's free like ours, you would think that in a free country that, that believers would be 
um, completely occupied in, in using that freedom to forward the cause of Christ, to preach the gospel, to be a witness, to help the needy, and so on. It was that we have the freedom to do that, to share the message. We're in the areas of oppression, persecution, that growth would be stunted, and the, the spread of the gospel would be limited. And that kind of is logical, isn't it? But that's not how it works, is it? Just look around you. If you don't know it, do some research. In those areas where the church is being persecuted, it is exploding because people are focused. In the countries that are free and prosperous, we lose sight of what we're here for, of the objective. We become nice Christians and kind Christians and accommodating Christians, and we no longer shine in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. Interesting, isn't it? It works just the opposite. So in reality, if we're afraid in our nation that that life is going to go downhill, maybe it's a good thing. Because maybe we'll get focused on the gospel. Because that's why we're here. We're here to help Jesus in his effort to build his church. So we're to shine as lights in this dark nation. And truly, as you look around us, this world is broken. It's hurting. It's lost. It's without direction. Things are, it, life's falling apart on all levels. In our education system, in our nation, in our, in our families even in our churches, who do not teach the word of God. The world is broken and hurting and needy. And we're to shine as lights, aren't we? Among whom you shine as lights in the world, among the brokenness. Matthew 5, 16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. John 1, 4, Jesus says of Jesus, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 8, 12, Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And that's what the world needs, isn't it? That's its greatest need to solve its problems. It's missing the light of life. It's missing a relationship with Jesus Christ, the one who can redeem them, rescue them, and save them. And that's why in our scripture reading today in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it tells us that the world's blinded. So the, because the light of the glory, the glory of the gospel of Christ should shine to them. And verse 6 says, For it is God who commanded the light to shine out of the darkness who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what God wants us to be. And this aspect in, his first, in the previous verse of, of eliminating conflict is just one aspect, really, isn't it? Of allowing our lights to shine so that the gospel is not veiled to those who are already blind. That's the point of that passage. You know, our unbiblical behavior, whatever form it might take, veils the gospel to a world that's already blinded. And that's the urgency I think this passage brings upon the importance of people seeing Jesus from, uh, through us and hearing it from us. That's really what the unsaved need. Galatians chapter 1 verse 4 reminds us that he delivered us from this present evil age. Evil system is what is in view here. You know, and, and when you... And I think this is an important perspective to carry when you view people around you because how do you help those around you? Maybe those in your family, those in your lives who are so broken. I think what we have to first of all recognize is, is to unearth the cause. Why? What is the root cause before you can get to the solution? And we know that the, the root cause, because the Bible tells us, is that they're alienated from God. From the life of God. They're blind. They don't know the good shepherd. 
You know, Psalm 23, as much as religious churches all over the world, some that do not preach the gospel like it, it's for the sheep. The Lord is my shepherd. It's for the sheep. The guiding hand of the shepherd to help us to navigate life and get over those humps and hurdles that destroy lives and bring blindness to people. So the solution, the only hope for deliverance from the clutches of sin and all its effects is found simply, it's at the cross. It's where sins were born and deliverance is found because Jesus rose from the dead and that's what we celebrate today. You know, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, talks about the, our former manner of life, he tells the Ephesian saints. How you used to walk in all kinds of various expressions of darkness. In verse 4, we see, but God. That's what made the difference in their life. It wasn't social reform. It wasn't political reform. It was but God who was rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. We must remember in our, in, in our ministries that the unsaved do not have the capacity to understand or live out the things of God. 2 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. He doesn't have the capacity to know them. And we know, and I look at sometimes I'm in a grocery store or, or wherever, and I see kids that are having, parents that are having trouble managing their kids, and really what's happening is the kids are managing their parents, is really what's going on. And I feel for them and think, you know, I could sit them down and try to give them a few parent, um, parenting pointers, I'm trying to say. What I need to sit them down with is point them to Christ because he is the eternal father who can teach them how to be a parent, how to live their lives. Because a natural man does not have the capacity. That's the problem. They're blinded. They don't have the capacity. Romans 8 tells, tells us that, that those that are in the flesh cannot see God. They cannot know God. They cannot relate to God. It's enmity against God. It's kind of like having a, a cell phone sometimes, and you know, in this area we're really good for losing our signal, and sometimes you lose your signal, you look up, and there's a tower right there. I don't have a, and I don't have a bar. All it says, emergency calls only. And there's a tower right there, but what's the problem? You're on the wrong network. That's the problem. It's not my network. And that's exactly the case of the lost. They're not on the network. They don't have the ability to comprehend. And so what they need is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what people need. That's what we're called to give them. The ultimate need of, the, of, of people is salvation. Become a child of God so that the Father, Heavenly Father, can father them as his children. And once they get saved, they have the capacity to enjoy the life we have in Christ. Jesus says in the Good Shepherd passage, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Then he'll go in and out and find pasture. Going in and out and find pasture represents victory in life, healing in life, health in life. They must first know the Good Shepherd. And so that's what we're called to preach. And in Philippians chapter 2, that's what we're to do. We're to shine his lights as we Hold forth the word of life. Hold it fast. Hold it fast in this passage has one, one nuance of the word is to, is, to, is to firmly hang on to that message as a solution for mankind. Another nuance is, is there's an inclination or a presentation involved to hold it forth. That's the message we need to hear, the message of Christ. And we celebrate today in our Lord's table here the, uh, the person of Christ, the one who won the victory not only over eternal hell, over the grave, he rose from the dead, but also over the clutches of sin in our lives. And that's the message we bring to people. Salvation, not only from eternal hell, but from the disastrous 
consequences of sin, depravity, and blindness in their lives. It's the message we preach. And so as we celebrate our Lord's table today, we're, we are thankful, aren't we? Not only for the salvation he's provided, but for the deliverance. I don't know about you, but I don't even like to think sometimes of what my life would be like if I had never come to Christ. The brokenness that, that would have that been amplified and so on. So we celebrate our Savior today. We remember him today. And maybe what a fitting time as a church to have our Thanksgiving dinner as the same day we celebrate the Lord's table because he is the centerpiece of our thankfulness, isn't he? For all he's given us by way of salvation and abundance in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the deliverance there is in Christ, Father. And we, so we turn to now our Lord's table um, to remember what Jesus did for us. Father, we've been studying it in this, in this book how he humbled himself to become a man, and then even to the point of the death of the cross. And even on that cross, Father, it represents that, that he bore our sins. He put himself under our sins. Father, thank you for that great love. And thank you, Father, that now we know that love and have eternal life, enjoy victory in life, but, Father, we can share it with others. We can show the love of Christ in that, that we might shine, and may we do so that we might shine as lights in this world. So, Father... May as we turn to our celebration of the Lord today, may our spirits be lifted up with praise and thankfulness for all you've given us and afforded us in Christ. May he receive the glory now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.